Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with Brian Kasnick. Over the past decade and a half, Kasnick has had a front row seat for the fall and rise of the American techno underground. And he's played no small part in bringing it back to the forefront of the global scene. He founded the Bunker New York in 2003, when techno events in the city were largely confined to small bars and basements. A decade later, and the party has an international reputation and spawned a label pushing heady techno from old friends like Donato Dozzi and Patrick Russell. Despite running a party, label and booking agency, Kasanik is a busy DJ in his own right. And as Max Pearl heard a few months back in New York, his journey with techno is still evolving. I co-founded The Bunker with Timeblind in 2003, and he lasted six months before moving to Berlin. So co-founded, but then took it over almost immediately after. Cool. Well, we're going to get back to the early days (laughs) at a later point. Before we get back to Timeblind and the early days of Bunker, I just, I remember in, when we were speaking over email, you mentioned that you've been slowing down the pace of how many bunker parties you do here in New York and you've been kind of traveling and living like a nomad life. And has that shifted your perspective a little bit? Yeah. I mean, for the, the bunker was weekly for a long time, I think until 2009 and then it became monthly and then it kind of slipped back into not weekly, but 20 to 25 parties a year. And this year, 2017, my plan is to do 11 parties. It doesn't seem like I'll add anything to that. Um, and that's a, in large part because I'm on the road so much touring. And also when I'm, when I am touring, I'm actually trying to see the places that I go to. I went to India this year. I've been to China. I'm trying to like add some tourist time onto the gig. So I'm just not in New York a lot. So I don't want to do as many gigs. So, uh, traveling the world has certainly changed my perspective. And it's also, I've been in the past year or two, I've been the artist who's being hosted and like the headliner of the party more often. And that's, I guess that shifted my perspective on how I treat artists when they're in town to play my party. It just, I, I feel a lot more empathetic mainly with how 
tired they are and probably how much they just want to be alone and decompress and then do their job. So that's, that's shifted for sure. Do you have any like favorite nightclubs or favorite crowds that really struck you from your experiences while you were touring? Yeah. Some recent favorite crowds and places I played at Bassiani in Tbilisi last year and that was super special. I'm actually going back there to do the, it was a bunker showcase with myself and Wada Igarashi and Marco and headed back there again in December. I played at the school with Derek Pazleko this year in Amsterdam. That was really incredible. Uh, just kind of perfectly set up venue and the way the staff interacts there and all it just, everybody's just really into it and wants to make the party incredible. And it, it is, and the crowd is great. I played at organic festival in Taiwan and that was, I think my favorite, definitely one of my favorite festival experiences playing at a festival was just really, really special vibe, really special location, awesome lineup. I had the opening, the opening set of the entire festival, which I thought might be kind of mellow, but since it was a camping festival and everybody had gotten there that day and were on site, it was actually one of the most crowded, best times to play the entire festival. And, uh... Of course, playing Berghain or Panorama Bar, which I've done both several times, is always, I mean, it really is everything it's hyped up to be. And I really do love playing in New York almost more than anywhere, just uh, playing for my friends, playing in familiar rooms, and uh, people are really hyped and up for it here, especially lately. So it's always great to play here. Is that sort of what makes the ideal club for you is like people who are really hyped and attentive and locked in? Yeah, like really, really interested in the music is a big one. And just, yeah, they're there for the music, I think, is the the main thread that kind of goes through all the gigs that I'm playing and kind of the community I'm a part of and what sets it apart from maybe other sectors of the club and electronic music world where it's kind of about other other things, not so much music. Right. Like the setting could be beautiful and the sound system's great, but if the people don't give a shit, then why? Yeah. You could be playing on the rooftop of some beautiful hotel in Paris or something, but people are that just, if they're just there to sit by a pool or whatever, it's not, it's not really going to be fun from a DJ's perspective. I don't think. So I've been told that, um, your sophistication goes beyond music and that you actually have some pretty deep cut recommendations for restaurants. Uh, all over the world. Yeah. I mean, I, I try to make a point everywhere I'm traveling of like meeting up with other people who are really into food and wine mainly. And that seems pretty easily easy. Like, cause people who, I don't know why this, why it happens, but people who are really into techno and music also generally seem to be really into fancy food and wine and things. Well, so, because they're in the pursuit of pleasure and beauty. And, yeah, and hedonism in yeah. a way. And just, um, like, I was just in Paris last week, or t- I guess technically two weekends ago, and uh, Maloud, who's one of the he's what, what hospitality guys. He, he works at the club and looks after the artists and he knows more about natural wine than maybe anybody I've ever met. And he just 
once he realized I was interested in that, like it was game on. He, we went out to a really nice dinner with him. He made some reservations for us. It was, it was awesome. So yeah. And a lot of friends, like other DJs traveling the world, seeking these things out. Like we all are, yeah. Talking to each other about wines you have to try in Paris or the restaurant you have to go to in Tbilisi and et cetera, et cetera. So um, a lot of your friends from the early days of Bunker and even prior to that um, are now starting to just hit the big time internationally. Um, like yeah. a lot of the early Bunker crew. I was wondering if you could talk about what that feels like. Yeah, it just feels, it feels incredible because I, I think every time, especially, you know, Derek Pazleko, who's been a resident since 2006, almost the beginning, every once in a while we'll find ourselves at a bunker showcase at Berghain or something, or, you know, he's playing at movement festival, all these just big career milestones that are happening for us now. And we didn't, we just always kind of reflect on how we never, it's not like we didn't think we would be successful in that way. It just didn't even occur to us that it was, or it certainly didn't occur to me that it was even possible that, like in the last, I started getting booked at Berghain first or Panorama Bar first, rather the first people to really bring me over to Europe. And that was maybe four or five years ago. And that was cool, but I didn't really think it'd turn into this international touring schedule that it has. So it's just, it's surprising, but it's not just me and Derek and of course, Mike Servito and Eric Cloutier, all the resident DJs, but it's also even just a lot of close friends of mine, people who were coming to the bunker or supporting the bunker or did early podcasts who were just these underground heroes who were doing it for the love of the music and not really so much for recognition, didn't really ever think they would get recognition. Kind of, you kind of stop caring after a point if people are going to recognize you or not. And now all of a sudden in the past few years, it seems like, oh, I have a friend on the lineup at Berghain almost every weekend. That's crazy. That was unthinkable a few years ago. Um, so yeah, especially amongst my close group of friends of the bunker residents and label artists and the interdimensional transmissions family, it's just, it's, it's just been really incredible and honestly surprising. I mean, it's well-deserved, but it's still surprising in a way that everybody's out and playing almost every weekend now. Right, because they spent so long just, like, killing it quietly yeah, without it did, anyone paying attention. It didn't seem like anybody would ever care. Just, but it's, yeah, it's all it's all kind of shifted. Do you think that it's part of the wider phenomenon of America starting to reach the levels of their European counterparts? Yeah, it kind of goes back and forth, where first it was all the American artists that everybody was excited about, and then it was Europe. And for a long time, it just felt like it was Europe. And even within America, there weren't a lot of American DJs traveling around and being the guests at each other's parties. We were always bringing over Europeans, which we, we still do. And there, of course, are a bunch of amazing European artists. But Europe especially seems very hungry for American talent now. So I think it, it is a part of that. And it's also that somehow, I mean, I think through sites like Resident Advisor and social media in general, a lot of these things have made it easier than it's ever been for people to dig deeper and discover new artists in a really cool way that just didn't 
exist before. I mean, when we started the bunker, there weren't podcasts, for example, like just, they just message boards. Yeah. Like they didn't occasionally, someone might figure out a way to post a mix or something, but you weren't, it was officially released mix CDs and that just, it wasn't a thing. Whereas now your favorite pretty obscure artist might have five or six new mixes that you can listen to in a year. It's just really changed how easy it is for people to discover this stuff, I think. Is it gratifying to see the scale sort of tipping back towards America? Yeah, for sure. I mean, for me also, it's not its not really America versus Europe. It's maybe just like quality. It's just, it's good to see more of what I see of like really quality artists that I've, for my taste, that I've personally enjoyed for de- years and decades getting their due is, yeah, it's it's great. It just, it seems like more than anything, there's just more, more artists being recognized than ever before. When I first got into this, it felt like they're really Richie Houghton would come to town and Jeff Mills would come to town and Sven Vaith would come to town. And that was kind of for a while that felt like that was and Carl Cox. I mean, it's just, it's just like, that's what techno was. Like it was more top heavy. Yeah. And now it's, those people are still out there. They're all still doing well, but there's just, there's so many more people involved, so many different perspectives. And I think that's really healthy and cool. Would you say that there are like specific things you learned from, uh, people who have been bunker residents for a while, like even down to like mixing techniques that you learn from Carlos Sufran or Derek plus I think I'm definitely influenced by all, like, all the bunker resident DJs and residents or affiliates of interdimensional transmissions have long been my favorite DJs. And I think all of us have different styles, but I think everybody's also influencing each other in a way, for sure and into a lot of the same music and tracks tend to overlap. It's like pretty common for us when we're all playing the same event that somebody plays a track and maybe two of the other DJs are like, man, (laughs) and not some recent huge bomb. Just like, how is this obscure track from 10, 15 years ago, something that, and maybe even something that none of us has played for a while, but everybody wanted to play it that same night. It's really interesting those kind of psychic connections that happen for sure my colleague uh will lynch described the bunker crew as a bunch of guys who are sort of in a contest to one-up each other in terms of finding the best music out there do you think that's like there's like a friendly one-upsmanship for sure yeah for sure you see that at the bunker i think you especially i would say you see that in the most exaggerated way at no way back the part, well, we, we do it in New York, but also in Detroit every year and Berlin and other places. But it's a night where we all come together and everybody's playing usually an hour and a half to a two hour set. So it's really action packed. And it's like, it's really, yeah, it's really intense with people. Everybody's trying to play the best set, pull out the best tracks. But I think it's like for sure a friendly competition. Yeah. (laughs) How would you say that New York techno has changed since the bunker began? I mean, rather dramatically, because the bunker is now almost 15 years old. So a lot, I mean, I think I would have said it changed dramatically 10 years ago. So now it feels like a completely different world. 
when I started the bunker there, it wasn't necessarily a sh- like a super focused techno party when I started it, but that was what I was into, but I was trying to do something a little different. Uh, but there was Tronic Treatment, which happened every Monday from the late 90s into, I think, the mid-2000s. It definitely overlapped with the bunker for a little bit. And there was another party that started around the same time as the bunker called Tronic, or not Tronic Treatment, um, Robots, that also happened on Friday nights. And people would kind of go to both parties. And then Kevin McHugh, who is now not throwing parties, but touring as Ambivalent and LA Foray had, I don't know, some monthlies and like semi-regular things. And for a while, when we started the bunker, that was it. That was it for people like places where people played techno in New York. And now there's like way more parties than that happening on every Friday and Saturday night. And there's techno at Bossa Nova, like, isn't it like pretty much literally every night of the week in other places. So it's really, there's just way more people involved. There's way more DJs, there's way more parties. And then you have this whole other level of panorama and these bigger festivals happening. Some, I don't even know what they all are. Um, like Awakenings comes here now. I don't know. There's these big, super huge mega techno festival lineups that there was just absolutely nothing like that when this started. So it's become a far more crowded market. And I think it's made it like, especially, especially recently, like even in the last year, talking to other promoters and clubs in New York, I think it's becoming very difficult for everybody because I think it's become oversaturated in a way that it's becoming, I think there's actually an article on RA about this, about how it's becoming difficult around the world, especially in these crowded markets for people to throw a party and just not lose their ass on it, really. Like not even forget about making a bunch of money, just like having a good party and not losing money is becoming uh, more and more difficult. And cover charges are going way up. Yeah, they keep, they keep, I mean, I, we started the bunker free, then we, then it was five, then it was 10. Uh, I don't really go above 20 these days unless we're doing a bunker limited, which I actually haven't done in a year or so. We'll do 30 or sometimes 40 for those because it's a, super the admissions limited to only 150 people but yeah parties have gotten you have some it's a completely different scale than the bunker but you have city fox and some of these other people doing these large events in new york that charge they charge cover charges that i don't i know i could never ever get away with and bring in way bigger audiences it's 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 like a whole different world out there yeah yeah it's kind of amazing getting 5,000 people at 80 bucks a head. Yeah. It's possible. You know, it's like, this is what's happening right now. Yeah. It's, it's, it's honestly a little hard for me to wrap my head around. I mean, good for that on them, I guess, for pulling it off and doing it. And I think that setting the price of a party is if you talk to promoters, I think it's actually one of the hardest tasks that there is in throwing a party is trying to decide what is a fair amount, what people will see as a fair amount to charge that will cover all your expenses and get like, I just want to get people out 
to my events. Like, I'm just like, what is like, I don't want the people not coming because they think it's too expensive. So I'm always trying to find that, which I think is generally somewhere between 10 and $20 is a price that people find not offensive and like willing to pay for a good party. Um, so you just, not recently, but within the last, I think last year you did a series of 36 hour marathon parties. We did three. We did three. We did one at Market Hotel and two at Paperbox. And that was in collaboration with uh, Unter, which yeah. is another promoter. Yeah. Um, how did that go? I mean, that's that's a fairly new phenomenon for New York. It's kind of new, but I talked about this with Seva, who is one of the one of the main people behind Unter, and we would do back in the 2000s, like mid 2000s, we were doing these New Year's Eve parties called Blood and Thunder at the bunker that went for 18 hours. And when I was working with Wolf and Lamb around that time too, we would sometimes have, I mean, the very first Blood and Thunder, we actually had a 12 hour bunker and Wolf and Lamb party at 12 turns 13. And then the 18 hour Blood and Thunder was the after party to the 12 hour party. So we had some history of doing that and it seemed really really crazy to people when we were doing that then and then I kind of personally backed off of it after a while because there were I think mainly Resolute but also other parties that kind of ran with that model of let's push it really far and see how long we can go and that kind of became not so much my crowd that was the crowd that was up for these really long distance parties. So I kind of backed away from it, but I had a meeting with Seva and Eric who were wanting to start doing their party Unter, which was a pretty new party at market hotel at the same time that I was moving the bunker there. And we were just meeting, we were trying not to step on each other's toes. We were discussing the possibility since we needed to bring some sound and lights and various production elements blocking the windows and things. We had actually both booked Market Hotel on the same weekend, unbeknownst to each other. And either they had the Friday night and I had the Saturday night or the other way around. And I was at dinner with Seven Eric and said, well, would it like kind of as a joke, kind of seriously, like what if we just didn't, what if we just set up the venue and just don't stop the party and just do a party that goes two nights and go all day. And Seva was like, I love it. I love the idea. Let's do it. And I was like, okay, but we have to get permission from Todd P to do this. And I think he would have to be crazy to let us do this. He's not going to let it. Like, I, I think we should go ask him, but he's not going to let us do it. And I think we literally maybe walked from there, from dinner over to the Market Hotel. And Todd was there and uh, Rick was there and... So I was like, I think it's great. Let's do it. And so we did it. And it was, it was great. <laughs> and we did a couple more. Unfortunately, Market Hotel, it's, it hasn't been open for a while uh, at this point for over a year, I think, for events. Um, so the, it went so well that we really wanted to keep it going and do more. And we found Paperbox and did a couple of them at Paperbox they they went pretty well but it just it didn't have the same magic that it had at market hotel so we kind of laid the idea to rest until the day possibly comes when we 
have the right venue to do a 36 hour or long party. And I mean, the, the trick to it is, is that if you're going to do a party that crazy and promote it, which you kind of have to do to get the critical mass to make it work, you need a legal venue. So finding a legal venue with a liquor license that is willing and able to operate for 36 hours straight and advertise it as such is extremely difficult in New York. I would imagine in most, most places, but we've had a hard time in New York finding a place where we can do this. One of the things I, I wanted to ask you is, I think you've, you must have gone through like a dozen, or not gone through in the sense of, you know, ruined, but you've tried out maybe a dozen different venues in the last couple of years. Like it's been Transpicos, Output, Good Room, Knockdown Center. Maybe we're not getting to a dozen. Yeah. Maybe I will. Been, yeah. So I'd say it's probably been like between five. I mean, you could add Market Hotel into that. We did Paper Box. Um, I did do a couple things at Bossa Nova when it first opened. It's a difficult dynamic because for me, ideally, I like to find a venue that I really like with a staff and vibe that I like and just stick with it. But what I've found is that people in New York now get venue fatigue really easily uh, because this is another thing that's really changed in New York techno scene is that when I was doing my party at Subtonic, it was the only tech... Granted, it was weekly, but it was still the only techno party happening at Subtonic. So it always had a really special vibe, and it wasn't getting worn out. Whereas now, when I... And I had the same thing at Galapagos, which became Public Assembly. And towards the end, they did allow... There were some other techno parties happening there, but not really much that was really the same vibe and the same crowd as my crowd. So I felt like I could really stick with a venue for a long time and people wouldn't get sick of it and it would kind of come to define the party. And I think that's nearly impossible now because of what I was saying earlier about the overcrowded market with so many promoters. If you find a good space, especially a legal one that can host a party in a functional way, the next thing you know, you've got people wanting to throw similar parties there every Friday and Saturday night, and then people get sick of the venue, or if the venue does something wrong for a while, they get a bad rep that's hard to recover from and get people interested in going back there. So, But for me, ideally, I like would prefer to find a venue that works and stick with it. You know, we stuck with Subtonic for five years, and then we stuck with... Well, Galapagos became public assembly. We were there for another five or six years, and that felt really good to just stay in the same spot. <clears throat> Subtonic was uh, a basement bar, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the rooms were made out of wine casks or something. It Can was you know? it was an old winery, and the room wasn't it, the room wasn't made of wine casks, but it was an old winery. And what they did is they it was all these huge casks downstairs in the basement where we did the party and they removed, took a part and removed some of them. And the, like the parts of the barrel became decorations against the wall. And then they left four or five barrels constructed and cut a hole in it and put chairs in it. So there's kind of a small dance floor that was surrounded by these, these old wine casks barrels that were big enough for seven, eight people to sit inside of them. So you could sit inside it just sounds like something you could never get away with in New York these days. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Subtonic was interesting. Like I said, we did the party there for five, six years. And the night the party was finally, like, 
the police came and like gave the venue her I don't want to know if I should say harassed but came in and wrote a bunch of tickets to the venue a few times but we were always able to then operate again downstairs I know at one point we had they had to have the loophole system where you ordered a drink from somebody who was standing by the bar and then they ordered it from the bartender like you're allowed to have a cocktail bar where the bartender doesn't directly serve the customers but somebody else walking around the room can so we had to do it that way for a while but when they finally shut down like the last party at subtonic which was my party and the task force came and basically raided the place and i think the conclusion was essentially that subtonic was never a legal place for people to gather and for them to sell alcohol. They basically had all the licenses in place to run Tonic upstairs, and Subtonic was just like an afterthought. It was really supposed to be a bar where people had drinks while they waited for a show to start or after the show finished and they wanted like met somebody or whatever and wanted to go downstairs and have a drink. And that turned into weekly DJ residencies, which were always very cool but kind of mellow. And then once the bunker really took off, it just, it got crazy. You know, we started like banging dance music and packing out the basement. So it kind of turned into this whole other thing. What was the sound of like early bunker at Subtonic? At the very beginning, we were trying to be as eclectic as possible, even though like I came from more of a techno back techno and also ambient at the time I was doing an ambient party for years called Undercity at the original Halcyon space. I did that every Sunday afternoon and that intersected there maybe the first year or so, maybe even two years of the bunker where I did the bunker every Friday and then my party Undercity at Halcyon every Sunday. So we were both coming from more of a kind of experimental slash techno background, but we would really try to change the party somewhat around guests. Like we might have somebody, a hip hop DJ one week and somebody who played two step or drum and bass the next week and then a house DJ and then someone playing dub. Like we're really just trying to be very eclectic, which is really cool. I was really into that concept, but it really seemed to confuse people like as a party was just getting off the ground where they came one week and they were they were really getting into it and dancing to one sound and then came another week and it was something else and I think we found that a lot of the people coming out weren't quite as open-minded about these things as we were so really that was the focus for the first uh, it's the timeline's always a little difficult for me to remember but I would say for maybe the first couple years like 2003 and four and then in 2005, we were just, I think I brought on more, uh, it moved in more of a techno direction. Like it's always, it's, and it's like that, while we do still keep it eclectic, especially in the early hours of the party, I'd say the primary focus has been techno since like 2005. And then we were really into kind of Perlon, stranger, weirder fringe side of minimal techno was really what what we were pushing in the mid 2000s if you really wanted to like pigeonhole it (laughs) um are there any people who were like really involved in the beginning that are sort of have taken their retirement from music yeah quite a few honestly maybe not full retirement but for some of them uh dj movement 
Carl Earhart was, he was a roommate and really good friend of mine in college. And he was a resident DJ for maybe a year or so before moving, I think in like 2006 or seven, he moved out to California to pursue a more academic career. And I don't, I don't think really does anything with music anymore. Uh, Shel Kaiman, who went as Clever Vice, she was in, she was a very good friend and involved for a while. And then she just kind of shifted her life and, and moved away from being a DJ. Unjust was a DJ early on, resident DJ. She's still, she still plays the party from time to time through her own party last year. So she's still like very involved in music, but not in any kind of like professional capacity. And then after that, everybody else who's been involved has basically like stayed on board and is still, still, still actively involved in some way in DJing. But I think right around this time, or maybe slightly before it, you got started at the Agriculture, which was a label in Brooklyn. Yeah, that was, I actually, I started there in 2000 and I started the bunker in 2003 and I stopped working there in 2004. So there was a little bit of overlap there and it was actually, that was the job that was sustaining me and paying my bills when I, I really started the bunker purely for fun. It wasn't supposed to to be my profession at all. I never, I never even imagined that being my profession. And then in 2004, at the same time I got, I, I broke my arm in a really bad bike accident, broke my foot shortly after that. And it was around that time that I also, uh, the agriculture, I don't think completely ended, but it really slowed down operations. And I guess I was laid off in a sense. And, at that point in 2004, I was really, I'd been doing the bunker for a year and I was really obsessed with it and really enjoyed it. And I just thought, well, I'm just going to try to do this. I'm going to collect unemployment for six months and keep doing the party. And then at the end of those six months, just see, see where things are at and see if this is sustainable. I didn't really strongly believe it would work, but I thought it was worth a shot. Why not? And, uh, sure enough, it just started, I was making very, very little money at that time, but I had, I lived in a loft with a bunch of artists and had a very low rent and was able and host was able to host artists who came into town at the loft and just kind of pulled it off. Yeah. Sorry. The original question was the agriculture, but yeah, just that just a little bit of crossover between the agriculture and the bunker. It was DJ Olive. Was he the agriculture founder? There, Yeah, he co-founded it with James Healy, uh-huh. who also ran Open Air, which was a bar on St. Mark's Place that I, like when it first opened, I worked on all the DJ bookings there. But they they founded the label together. I would say that Olive was kind of the, more the curator of the label deciding what music would come out and did a lot of the, the artwork and everything. But yeah, James, James owned the label as well. You know, it's interesting is I always think for me, DJ Olive in my, my early years of consuming music was super influential. Um, and I think he was for a lot of people around that time, but I just feel like he is a little bit of an unsung hero. Uh, can you talk about what his influence was? Yeah, I mean, his influence was pretty huge on me as just as a like as a human, he was somebody who really just encouraged everybody around him 
in especially in their creative pursuits. And, you know, he was one of the first people that booked me to DJ in New York and was always very enthusiastic, you know, would come to my gigs. And, uh, like when I started the bunker, he was just super into it. And then also musically. Yeah. I mean, some of his, the albums and things that he did and listening to him DJ at parties back then was like hugely influential to me and what I was all about. And outside of music, like culturally, there were parties that he was doing uh, with a crew called La La Landia, and then all the stuff that he did with We, like We TM. He was doing what are now, in my mind, like legendary, weird, arty warehouse parties in Williamsburg before Williamsburg was like a thing, when it was weird that there were events happening in Brooklyn. He was, he was one of the people doing those early events. So yeah, I think he was hugely influential and, and you're right in many ways unsung for sure. You know, it's funny. I did an RA exchange with Jace DJ rupture uh-huh. and he brought up those same Williamsburg warehouse parties as kind of this like weird anomalous, like chaotic moment where a lot of yeah. cool stuff happened for uh, sure. Were you ever involved with the uh, Ilbient? So it's like a, something I always ask people. I was pretty, that was when I, when I moved to New York in 96 or wait, no, 97. And when I moved here, that was like, in my mind as somebody who hadn't lived here, like that's what was happening in New York. That was all the, the cool people and the interesting music were involved in that scene. So when I got here, I, I was really seeking it out immediately. And I think one of the very, I think the first event I came to in New York City, DJ Olive was playing. There was a crew called Sound Lab that did some bigger warehouse events, but they also just had a weekly, which was a way there were, when I first got to New York, there were a lot of these weekly, like that's just how, that's how DJ and promoter residencies worked in New York. It seems I've, when I mention it to friends now, especially people newer to electronic music and throwing parties and I tell them that I did the bunker weekly it kind of blows their mind but that was just what you did then you convinced some bar or small club to give you a day of the week that you did the party every week and that was it and you just did it so anyway sound lab did a party on Tuesday nights that I think was just called sound lab it was at a little bar on Orchard Street and I hung out there all the time and got to play there played with DJ Spooky a lot and Badawi and we and kind of all these characters that were central to that scene. So yeah, I would say that was when I first got to New York and I wasn't really involved in throwing events at that point, but I was actively trying to DJ events and attending events and that was pretty that was pretty much my 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 scene when I like a lot, then like a lot of people, it was definitely, Ilbient was already a bad word, but it was kind of all these people from that scene that were branching out and doing their own thing. But it definitely all, I think, grew out of that movement that I feel like I probably missed. I definitely missed the peak of in New York, but was here, I'd say, for the tail end of it, for sure. I think for the people who don't know, would you like, would you set the scene? Like my idea of like Ilbian parties, because I didn't arrive to New York until after that whole thing had passed. Right. But my idea was like people kind of like sitting on the floor, like burning incense and like smoking weed. There was some of that, but the best parties in that era, actually the best one I ever went to was called 
substation, and that was thrown by, I believe, James Healy, who ran the agriculture, and Dr. Decent. And I think Olive was probably, well, I'm sure he was involved creatively on some level, but that party had rooms kind of like the one you're describing, like essentially chill out rooms where people were just playing really weird music and sitting around. But then there was a techno room hosted by Temple Records. I know Khan played for sure. I can't remember who else played, but that was one of the first nights that I went out and heard like four, four proper techno on a big sound system and really changed my world. And there was also uh, a drum and bass room with Dara and DB and DJ Wally and a whole bunch of people from Breakbeat Science. And that was like really, really next level hip hop room. There was really just, everybody was kind of into everything. And I felt like everybody was doing everything really well. And the best DJs were managing to combine all of that into one set, which is really hard to do. But um, I mean, you said you did an exchange with Rupture. He was in Boston at the time and would occasionally come down, but he's, I think he kind of mastered that style maybe more than anybody of really like bringing together all these disparate, seemingly disparate elements into a cohesive mix. What was it like trying to hold it down for dance music at a time where New York City was so rock? oriented like was it cool did you enjoy like being underground or was it frustrating because you felt like you weren't getting the attention yeah I kind of get asked that a lot I didn't feel I was never frustrated by it because like I said we just started the party to try to have fun and I just I really Subtonic was one of my favorite places in the world to hang out and I just wanted to play records for the community of friends I was building up and then people from the community started also wanting to play records there. So it never, when we first, first started, we had trouble sometimes even getting the party to go very late. Like we might close it at one or 2 a.m. just because we didn't have a crowd. But it really didn't take long until we had a critical mass at Subtonic, which was probably 75 people or something. And it just felt really good. And it was all I, I guess I wasn't, I, I wasn't striving for it to be bigger or bigger or something. It just felt like we had everything we needed. So it didn't bother me that, I mean, I don't know in that era if rock was really necessarily more popular or it just became so hard to operate a nightclub in New York that the culture kind of shrunk and receded a little bit. Whereas you could still have venues where you had a rock concert, but it became really difficult. I feel in the mid 2000s, like party culture just got really clamped down on and pushed more underground. And a lot of people just moved away from it. But yeah, I, I, I never remember feeling frustrated by it. And we even had, we had an era in, I would say probably around 2004, 2004 and five, especially when uh, Clever Vice was very involved in the party with me. And we both worked at Kim's records on St. Mark's place and were very connected to what I thought were some straight up rock bands, but just really interesting bands doing cool things. I know we had member, we had gang gang dance play a bunch of times and uh, members of animal collective and black dice and things of that nature that were part of the bunker. There were, we would have concerts upstairs at midnight. So we were really, if anything, we were just trying to, 
again, in the early days of the bunker, like cross over these various scenes and trying to get the people who were into the weirdo bands into the weirdo techno and vice versa with like varying degrees of success. It, it usually didn't work, but we always tried anyways. You know, the rock show would finish upstairs and we would invite people to come downstairs for free to the techno party. And I think we, I think we really, we actually did convert some people in both directions, but for the most part, people are not so much into everything. Did you lose a fair amount of people to like Berlin at the time? Um, I I didn't feel from like our core audience that we were losing people, but I've lost, you know, I've lost two resident DJs to Berlin over the year and certainly a lot of friends and artists from the U S scene who got very popular in Europe. Berlin became the natural choice for them. Um, I do remember I was very involved. I mentioned earlier the open air bar on St. Mark's place that I did the DJ booking at. And, uh, my big thing there was the, I made Magda the Friday night resident and she did that for, I don't know, a year or so. And there was kind of a scene around her, which would have been 2000, 2001. It was like her, Troy Pierce, heartthrob, all, a lot of people that came to make up the minus roster and that, more so than the bunker that was kind of before the bunker people from that scene and the DJs and things I knew there, like they all moved to Berlin. Um, but I feel like by the time I started the bunker, it was like, these are the techno people that are left in New York from all the DJs and hardcore fans or whatever that moved to Berlin. Um, so let's talk about the label for a little bit. You, uh, emphasize like local artists and like personal connections and friendships a lot in, in your roster, right? Yeah, for sure. Could you expand a little more on that approach? Yeah, it's just, I don't, putting out somebody's music is, it's a pretty personal process. And it's also, it's kind of very expensive to do to just, just to put out an EP on vinyl from somebody. So when it, what it really came down to is me wanting to help who I saw were the really talented musicians and producers around me who I thought maybe wouldn't probably wouldn't get a release out on vinyl any other way. I, th- I, I was also pulling from people who were somehow involved in the bunker community. Some of them like Zemi 17, he was actually a guy who did sound for me. And then some of them like Clay Wilson and Lote were people who were just coming to the party and drawing a lot of influence from it. And I just thought that people like that had a better chance of kind of reflecting what the sound and the vibe of the party was all about than some, I mean, I certainly had a lot of very famous techno friends who I could have hit up for releases on the label. And I did hit some of them up. You know, we had an early release from Voices from the Lake and Donato Dazi. And we did a Reagents record, um, Adam TM. So, but I really, it's always been important to me to keep it not necessarily local, but just it, it does end up being local, but people who just have a personal connection to the party and can reflect the sound in their music somehow. Um, as a label manager, are you pretty hands-on? Do you offer like edits and revisions and say like, why don't you come back to me once you've done such and such? Somewhat. I mean, I, it's, it's, 
absolutely different with every artist. And one of the things that's been really surprising to me is how different that can be. Because I have some artists, like Gunnar Haslam is a good example. He just, he gives me an album or a record and it's done. It's just done. Like he's like, this is the track order. This is what the tracks are called. This is the A1. This is the B2. And that's how he works. And then I have other artists who might send me like way too much material, and 20, 30, tr- seeking guidance yeah, like, wait, and I can, I can certainly say, I like this track. I don't like this track. Maybe this one's a little too long. Maybe this one should start in a way that a DJ could actually mix into it and that kind of advice. But I'm not, um, I'm not a studio guy. I'm not a producer. So I can't really, I can't give people super specific technical advice, even though sometimes that's what they really want. A lot of times it's more just people submit things and I really love it. And I want to, I'm super jazzed to put it out or I'm just not feeling it, which is sometimes hard for people to hear, especially if you don't have a lot of, it's hard to give somebody a lot of feedback as to why you don't like something, especially without hurting their feelings, especially without like a deep knowledge of production. But sometimes it's just, sorry, I just don't, it's just, it's not horrible music or anything, but it's just not something I'm so excited about that I want to spend time, energy, and money putting it out on vinyl. I mean, vinyl's the real, like, that's kind of what makes things, it's very difficult and expensive to put out a vinyl record. So after we're up to, I think we have 25 out, but I'm up, like, as far as things that are planned for the future, I'm up to catalog number 30. So doing 30 releases, I've learned a lot about like what is kind of worthy and will work on vinyl and things that maybe just won't. And we can't do that. So you have eight more sort of planned in I have, stages of preparedness. I have six that are like the artist is done. Mm-hmm. And then I have a few more that are super close to being done, which I think is pretty no- like I'm, I feel like that's normally the state that I'm in. I feel like I always have somewhere between five and eight records that are either done or very close to done. So it just keeps, it just keeps going. And I kind of, I put them out as fast as I can, which is not definitely not as fast as I ideally, like in an ideal world, I would be getting these things out, but it just, it takes time. And I'm sure many people on the exchange have probably belly ached about how horrible the vinyl production process is. So I don't really want to go into that too much other than to say that it is, it is really horrible and unprofessional and it's very difficult to get a record out. Uh, one thing that I was talking about with a friend recently is the job of like an A&R person isn't just picking the good artists. It's then also sort of guiding them and giving them support and like sort of helping them with the trajectory of their career in terms of like, okay, we're going to start with a single and then we'll do a tour and then we'll do a larger EP. And then just at the right time, we'll drop the album. So do you think that like these problems with like distribution and manufacturing of vinyl make it more difficult to plan out like a career in a long term? For sure, for sure. Because we could one, I mean, one lesson that I learned very early on is that we were trying to time the releases of records with say a party in New York, you know, like, Oh, we put out Marco shuttles record and now he's going to make his like do a big party in New York, or we're going to put out leisure muffins record right at the time that I'm appearing with him in Japan or these kind of things. And I learned that at least on the level that I'm working, 
planning any kind of tour date or party around the release of a record is just a, a bad idea because it, it rarely works out. So yeah, that does that does make it it makes things difficult as far as planning some. I mean, I think planning a career trajectory is very difficult to impossible to begin with. And one of the things that's we one of the reasons I started the label is people in Europe and Japan and other places were contacting me and they wanted to do the bunker in other cities, which of course was super jazzed to do. They'd be like, okay, well, what do we do? And I'm like, okay, it's, I'm a resident DJ. Derek Plazleko is a resident DJ, Mike Servito. They'd be like, okay, that's cool. But who's the headliner of the party? It's like, that's, I don't know. That's, that's who we are. So they would have me book at, like we did one in London with Andy Stott um, just various places. And I started to think, well, if we're going to start doing bunker parties and showcases and nights around the world, I might as well have a label that creates bunker headliners so that our label artists are the headliners because apparently the resident DJs aren't enough. So that was kind of the grand plan. And then the last thing that I expected was that you know, one of my resident DJs, Mike Servito, becomes he now he's he's the that's whatever everybody we have no really not a hard time getting any of the resident DJs booked around the world, but getting the you know especially the not already well known label artist gigs has been extremely difficult. So that's I. I guess in retrospect, naively thought that it would be the opposite, that we would be putting out these records and everybody would want to see the artists who made these amazing records and then they'd be supported by the resident DJs. It's more the other way around where people want to book the resident DJs and we have to ask, hey, can we can we bring one of our label artists to do a live set or also their great DJs? It's so it's it's I guess the point being it's really hard to to plan any kind of career trajectory. Things just seem to kind of happen in a way. So you also have this, you have kind of like an ecosystem going where you also do booking, right? You have a booking agency. I have a booking agency. Actually, right upstairs from us now is Michelle, who's my my one full-time employee. And she's pretty much running the booking agency full-time. So it's, uh, it's, it's called Beyond Booking. It's essentially, it's the bunker booking agency. It's all, all of my resident DJs. And all of the label artists, and we we do worldwide bookings for a few people, but for the most part, we're focused on North America. And all of our bigger artists and resident DJs have booking agents for other parts of the world. But this, I've been doing that since we would have to ask Derek to be, I mean, Derek became resident in 2006. I feel like I've probably been doing it for 10 years now. It just... It's always been a very part-time thing for me. I was doing Derek and then Servito's bookings in the U.S. So this is like before the label. And then started, I think, yes, before I did the label, I started doing North American bookings for Donato Dazi, Voices from the Lake, Adam TM, who then became label artist, which is part of how we were so connected and allowed that to happen. But it was really back in the day meaning maybe like six, seven years ago, I would have maybe a tour a month I was organizing, meaning Donato came over and played four dates, or once Derek was living in Europe, he would come over and play four dates. But now 
as things have blown up for the bunker, but I think more importantly, as things have kind of blown up in North America and there's way more parties, festivals, nightclubs happening. I mean, it's, yeah, it's become a full-time job for Michelle just to handle every, you know, just to handle our rosters, uh, North American bookings on a week to week basis. What are your thoughts in general on this kind of like expansion and professionalization of what we do? Or do you think it's a rising tide that lifts all boats or? I don't know if it lifts all boats. I think it's definitely, I mean, as someone who's been at it for a long time, there's definite positive sides to things being so professional, especially as like we were talking about earlier with my shifting perspective of being an artist on the road, like having someone who's handling all those details for you and knowing that you're working with a trusted person who's going to deliver a good party and have good sound and you're going to get paid at the end of the night. Like those have all been, that's all been positive, but I think there's, there's probably some negative aspects as well to things becoming more official in a way, or I guess people would say commercialized um, where things don't feel as genuine or heartfelt somehow because capitalism is involved. But overall, what I've seen is, quite a few artists around me involved in the bunker and always keep mentioning interdimensional transmissions. They're kind of like our sister label crew. I've seen a bunch of people go from a point where they were some of my favorite DJs in the world and they were doing it as more of a hobby to actually being able to make a legitimate living doing this, making music, DJing and I think that's really positive because I think Mike Servito should be able to work on his sets and DJ around the world and shouldn't have to like work a nine to five day job in addition to that. I, so it's, I think that if nothing else, that's like something really positive that's come out of everything getting more professional for sure. Are you willing to talk about what's on the horizon for the label? Yeah. Yeah. We can do that. I don't, the next, the immediate thing is at the end of September, we're releasing another Adam TM EP and uh, a new artist, JF Burma. It's my friend, Jeremy, who lives out on the West coast. And then we have uh, Ninos do Brazil are putting out a rec that they will be the next one that has a Patrick Russell remix on it. And other things in the works are an Antennas record, which I'm super excited about, another Wada Igarashi EP, uh, another Clay Wilson EP, and also this Clay Wilson remix EP that has some really stellar tracks on it. And then a lot more in the works, but that's probably like the next five or six. They're all in various states of production. Cool. And another thing I wanted to ask before we close it out is there, are you in touch with um, any of the like up and coming or like younger crews or artists that you've sort of wanted to like bring under your wing? Yeah. There's artists who I'm, I'm not going to that like most of those would qualify as people I'm not going to mention, but there's quite a few young artists. Some of them that I've been in a way talking to and meeting with and listening to their music for a long time, in some cases years, um, just waiting for the right moment. I mean, you don't really want to put out someone's music before they feel ready or you feel the music is up to par, but yeah, there's always, I'm, I'm certainly always on the lookout either for people I actually personally know, but also just people who I hear out or people that 
artists that people are getting excited about. So yeah, there's always, we're always trying to bring new people into the fold. I think that's part of what keeps it interesting for me, for sure. 